Ken Krawchuk here, and welcome to Episode 6 of the Pennsylvania Project. As you know, here at Pennsylvania Project, our vision is a better Pennsylvania. To achieve that vision, our mission is to showcase the political, cultural, and environmental challenges facing Pennsylvania and to explore their solutions. But more important than solving the problem correctly is to solve the correct problem. And that sounds like the correct thing to do to me. We have another outstanding show planned for you today. And like all episodes of the Pennsylvania Project, it's divided into three parts. You, them, and me. Part one is all about you, your questions, your opinions, your solutions, your whatevers. And rather than a call-in format, we're in email-in format. So if you have something to say, you can contact us, uh, contact us at PennsylvaniaProject.com because you are an integral part of every episode. And you can always listen in. iTunes, Stitcher, Google, or other podcast providers, we're everywhere. Today, for the you part, we have a whole bunch of new questions about libertarian electoral success, high gas prices, state police claiming the gas tax, cannabis legislation, legalization, and a lot more. After that, part two is all about them. In each episode, we host a guest to help showcase the political, cultural, and or environmental issues facing Pennsylvania. And today, our guest is a cross between the political and the cultural, Carmina Taylor, an NAACP branch president. And after that comes part three of the Pennsylvania Project, the me part, where it's my turn, your caster, Ken Krawchuk. I'll be focusing on a particular issue that sticks in my craw. And today's issue, second-class leadership. And throughout the show, we'll be featuring a Pennsylvania Toastmaster to narrate our live commercials and whatever comes into our mailbag. And today we have with us distinguished Toastmaster Sheila Arespi. Welcome to the Pennsylvania Project, Sheila. Hi, Ken. How's it going? Oh, it's going good. Great to be here. Great to see you. Well, let's get right to the mailbag. And remember, our mission here is not just to complain, but to explore solutions. Sheila, what do we got today? We have a question from Joe Slosky from Center County. At the local level, what do you think are the Libertarians' election success prospects in both 2019 and 2020? Well, I could sum that up in one word. Excellent. As you may know, Libertarians are the third largest party. We outnumber all the other third parties put together, whether you look at it in office, people in office, people registered. There are almost 40 in Pennsylvania currently serving in office. We have about 50,000 registered voters, and we are the fastest growing third party. I like to call us on the political scene the 800-pound chihuahua. (laughs) I ran for governor last year, as a lot of people know, and that's the third time I've run, and each time – I set gubernatorial records in each successive race. keeps going up and up and up. And also, last year, the Republican state rep in my district actually had my sign on his front lawn. Talk about success. Local offices are always the best. Uh, Paul Nicotera, who is our technical producer here, he's running this year for Upper Dublin Ward 3, and he's got the support of the Republican Party. So we're getting a lot of support from the Republicans. That means that's one of the reasons why I say our chances look excellent, because we are getting that kind of support. You know, a lot of people point to the presidency and say, oh, you guys only got 3% last time. It's like, wait a minute, 3% is a record. What did we have before that, 1%? So we tripled our vote total in 2016. But, you know, we tell people we're not going to have a libertarian president until we have several libertarian congressmen and senators. And we're not going to have them until we have a couple of libertarian governors and people in the state houses. And we're not going to have them until we have people running for school board dog catcher, whatever it may be, and that's what we've got. As I said, we have almost 40 people currently in office, and we're growing. So taking all that into account, what do I see our prospects? I see them as excellent. Thanks, Ken. 
We have another question from Matt of Lycoming County. Hi, Ken. It's great to hear you on the radio. Thank you. In your opinion, what is the single greatest thing that Pennsylvania can do in order to alleviate the extremely high fuel costs that are burdening Pennsylvania residents? High fuel costs? Matt, what gives you that idea? You know, uh, let's take a step back and look at it from a logical point of view. I filled up today, and gas prices change all the time. I don't know what it's going to be when you're listening to this, but I paid two eighty-five a gallon. But you see, I have a Plymouth Fury, 1972 Plymouth Fury parked in front of my house, 49,000 original miles on it. I love it. It's my little baby. But you know, when that car was new, silver quarters used to circulate. And back then, gas was running about 25, 26 cents a gallon. So that silver quarter would buy one gallon of gas. Well, today, do you know what that silver quarter is worth? Between yeah. 3 and $4 just for the quarter. So that quarter, if you had held on to it, could buy more than a gallon of gas. So gas prices aren't high. Gas prices have gone down. It's the value of your money that has plummeted. So when you say we have high fuel costs, that's not true. The fault is with the Federal Reserve System at the federal level, of course. They just run the printing presses and they just print more money because I guess it was what? In 72, the evil Richard Nixon, President Nixon, disengaged us from the silver standard. And of course, the results were anything goes and they just keep printing and printing and printing. And the Federal Reserve, it's a private bank. It's no more federal than Federal Express. And that's the problem right there. But there's something that we can do. Because the federal constitution, Article 1, Section 10, it says, no state shall make anything but gold or silver coin a tender. Well, why don't we do that? Why don't we start minting our own gold and silver coins and end all this inflation that we've been seeing? We have the constitutional authority to do it. We could distribute them, set up our own mints, and I already know what to call it. I'm going to call it a sylvan penny. Sylvan. Because that is an anagram of the word Pennsylvania. If you rearrange the letters, it comes out to be a sylvan penny. So once we start making our own silver coins, we're going to call them silver, uh, we'll call them a sylvan penny, and it will, it will be able to declare our independence from the Federal Reserve. That sounds like a cool idea. Thank you. Our next person is Brandon M. Magoon from Erie County. Oh, I know Brandon. What do you think of the PA State Police getting all that money that was supposed to go for road repairs? <laughs> all that money? Well, it's gas tax money. You know, at 50, what is it, 57 point something, point six, I think, cents per, per gallon, we have the highest gas tax in the nation. And I checked the numbers, and only $4 billion of it have, have come from the state's motor license fund. Almost one-third of the gas tax is going to the state police. And that one-third pays for about two-thirds of the state police budget. So when you ask, what do I think of the state police getting all that money? Well, the first question I always ask myself, is it constitutional? So, of course, I never leave home without my Pennsylvania Constitution. And I looked at Article 8, Section 1, which authorizes the gas tax. And it says, all proceeds from the gasoline and other motor vehicle taxes, motor vehicle registration taxes, this, that, that, and that, and that, shall be used solely for the construction, reconstruction, maintenance, and repair of and safety on public highways and bridges, plus costs and expenses incident thereto, and shall not be diverted by transfer or otherwise for any other purpose. 
And I think that's where Brandon is coming from, saying, why are we doing this when the Constitution says it has to be done for that? Because they're using it for schools. They're using it for SEPTA and other mass transit, things like that. So some of the spending of the gas tax is clearly unconstitutional. But let's go back to Article 8, Section 11, where it mentions for the safety of public highways and bridges. Safety. Now, an argument could certainly be made that state police are part of that safety. And, you know, about half of Pennsylvania's 2,500 municipalities are protected by the state police. But is it worth covering two-thirds the cost of the state police? Well, you know, I'm a graduate of the Abington Citizens Police Academy, and I found out there that most of the police work is traffic-related, cars and stopping people and things like that. So most comes out to about two-thirds, maybe a little bit less. So two-thirds of the cost of state police being paid for by the gas tax. Two-thirds of police work is for traffic safety. So I'm not going to quibble, but those two numbers sound about the same to me. So it sounds like, what do I think about the state police getting all that money? It's not supposed to go for all for road repair. Some of it's supposed to go for road safety, and that's what they're getting. And you know, while it sounds constitutional to me, it certainly sounds better than Governor Tom Wolf's idea of a new $25 per head tax on the rural communities. So it sounds good to me. We have another question from Joseph Van Wagner from Montgomery County. Compared to the current governor, how would you better handle the marijuana legalization rollout? <laughs> rollout? Is that a joke? You know, like papers <laughs> and you roll it out? I don't know. No, there's, there are many, many ways better than handling it. First of all, I don't like him flip-flopping. When he was running for governor, he says, no, no way. Pennsylvania is not ready for it, as if he knows what Pennsylvania is doing. Pennsylvania has been ready for it. The country has been ready for it for a long, long time. Then he flip-flopped, and now he's like, oh, yeah, I think it's okay. But then you look at the law that he passed, and it's medical marijuana. You have to have a state-approved disease to get it. Good grief. And I've talked to some people who just, they don't have the state-approved disease, so they're being manufactured into criminals. The state is making sick people criminals. Why are we persecuting sick people? When I was running for governor last year, I had a very simple solution to this. Using the power of the pardon granted to the governor by the Constitution, day one, I was going to pardon all nonviolent drug offenders. People don't think pot smokers belong in prison. Sheila, do you think pot smokers belong in prison? No. No, nobody does. In fact, I kept asking that question over and over and over again, and last year I got one hand going up out of the thousands of people I was talking to. So the governor right now, today, can just do the same thing, say, I'm going to get the ball rolling to pardon all these people. I'm going to commute all their sentences, and we're just going to let them go on with their lives instead of manufacturing these criminals. So how would I better handle it? I'd end it as soon as I could, my first day in office before I broke for lunch. Our next question is from Kevin Goggin from Cumberland County. What can we do about district attorneys who won't do anything about police brutality? <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, Kevin, I mean, that's, that's huge because – and that's something that really sticks in my craw. In fact, I'm going to do a, a whole stick in my craw, not, not today, but it's some future one. And I, I don't think I'm going to go into so much detail. But all I can say right now is that, yes, the police are out of control. I'm thinking last summer when they commandeered a bulldozer and killed a guy by running over him or the Lancaster cop who tasered somebody in the back. 
I, I predicted at the time that all these people were going to be found innocent because of the way the laws were set up, and I was right. It, it's just – it's out of control. The police are gunning us down. Now, not all cops are bad. Like I said, I'm a graduate of the Abington Citizens Police Academy. There's a lot I can say about it. I'm not going to say more than that, Kevin. I'm sorry, but it's going to be in a future episode, and we'll let you know when that's going to happen. I'll say that'll do it for the you portion of our show today. <laughs> Thank you all for getting in touch with us. And if you, buy, as I always say, if you want to get a hold of us, visit our website at PennsylvaniaProject.com and leave, <clears throat> excuse me, leave us a message and we'll get ready to do it. In the meantime, we'll be right back for the you portion of the show in a moment with our guest, Carmina Taylor. And we'll be right back after this information. Did you hear the latest news? Almost two-thirds of all federal spending now goes to pay for the welfare state. More than $2.2 trillion, which just about equals federal income. Do you realize what that means? Virtually all tax revenue is now being consumed by the welfare state. But how do we rein in that runaway spending before it destroys America? The answer? The separation of society and state. That's the premise of the new novel, Atlas Snubbed, an unsanctioned parody sequel to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Snubbed presents a workable alternative to the welfare state as we know it. Atlas Snubbed expertly extends Rand's epic story of a looter's world snubbed by the men of the mind, bringing to life a crumbling post-apocalyptic world where no one need ask who is John Galt, because now they know. Atlas Snubbed, available at all online bookstores or through atlassnubbed.com. Read it today before it's too late. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here, caster at the Pennsylvania Project. You know, it's easy to find a high-paying job. At least for some people it is. Employers are begging for competent leaders who know how to communicate effectively. But do those words describe you? Competent leader communicates effectively? If not, or even if they do, you may want to consider joining Toastmasters. The mission of Toastmasters is to provide a supportive environment for learning communication and leadership skills. But does it really work? Hey, look at me. I'm a Toastmaster, and now I have my own radio show. So turn your life around like I did. Visit Toastmasters.org and contact the club near you. Visitors are always welcome, and be sure to mention my name. The future is anxiously awaiting competent leaders who know how to communicate effectively. You can be that leader. It all starts at Toastmasters.org. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here, and welcome to episode six of Pennsylvania Project. This is the them portion, where we host a ghost to help showcase the political and or cultural and or environmental issues facing Pennsylvania. My guest today is Carmina Taylor. She's the branch president of the Ambler NAACP. She's been a community activist for over 30 years with a lifelong passion for education and human rights. She's committed to all communities for the benefit of humanity. What a lady. And, you know, I asked her what her greatest accomplishment was, and my mother would just love you because the answer was shepherding her son through high school and then college after the death of his older brother. Tough on a mother. She's also somebody who's championing unengaged, uninformed, and misinformed voters. She's from Puerto Rico. She came into into America at the age of 11, and now she lives on the parkway in downtown Philadelphia with a view of the Rocky statue. And I just found out today 
She's a competent Toastmaster. So she should be right at home. Carmita, welcome to the Pennsylvania Project. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ken. It's good to have you here. Well, let's start at the beginning. Yes. You're president of the NAACP chapter. Yes. What does that involve? It involves a great deal. Um, I think one of the greatest things that people uh, don't understand about the NAACP is that it was founded by uh, four um, Caucasian people. And the, the misnomer that is just for blacks is not it. And what we do is really try to educate people that civil rights are human rights mm-hmm. and that um, it's not a white or black issue. It's a human issue. And so we address socioeconomic issues, um, educational disparities, um, law enforcement disparities. But whoever it relates to that their civil rights have been violated, we advocate for them. Sounds very, very admirable. It is. It's, it's, you have to have a passion for the work. I said to someone, I think, I don't know who it was, um, I think it was Mark. I said that um, civil rights work is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Uh-huh. And um, you have to be committed all the way through ups and downs and long hurdles. It sounds like, just reading from your introduction, it sounds like you're one of those people. And I've had... Ex- I've been told. <laughs> and I have personally seen it. It was funny. It wasn't until, I guess, yesterday that I realized that you and I have met before. Yes, yes. We Now, what Carmina did is she organized a political candidate's rally, a debate. I wouldn't call it a debate. Call it, it, was, a, it was a discussion. It was a forum. A, a forum. There you go. That's the best word because everybody was very, very civil. Absolutely. And it was just outside of Philadelphia at Norristown High, as I remember. And we had, what, eight people on the stage there? Absolutely. Ten? And one of them was our current lieutenant governor, John Featherman. It was mm-hmm. the first time that I had met him. But Carmina was the person who organized the whole thing. And I personally, I felt thrilled when I was introduced to you. It's like, Man, this lady who could put this together. How many people were there? Hundreds of people, right? I, I lost track. I was so focused on making sure we had a, a, a very meaningful experience. Uh-huh. And I think for me, what was most important is that the Libertarian Party and the Green Party got to have a conversation mm-hmm. with political candidates um, at the primary level. And I think right then, what was most, most important, it was the first time Pennsylvania ever had more female candidates uh-huh. running for lieutenant governor. Uh-huh. And I thought that was a very significant moment. And to have everyone at the table and have voters understand where people and candidates stand prior to the typical general election cycle. So I was I felt very fortunate to be able to organize that and bring out those two elements. Uh-huh. And we were fortunate as well to just to be invited to that because our lieutenant governor candidate, Kathy Smith, was there. She was brilliant. I know. And, you know, she, she came really all, was. all the way from Pittsburgh. She drove 300 miles to And I was so appreciative. There. I was so appreciative. Oh. But the feedback, I didn't mean to cut you off, no. Ken, but the feedback that I received, um, there were so many people that didn't know who Kathleen was. Mm-hmm. And they valued her commentary. They valued her brilliance in answering questions and, and the thoughtfulness behind it and the comprehensiveness. And that was the importance of the event for people to have an opportunity to see um, 
people that want to serve mm-hmm. and want to uh, represent their interests for the larger po- body. And um, I just felt that that was important. And Kathleen was one of the best takeaways of feedback that I received from wow. people in the audience. I don't think I ever told her that, but um, she was just exceptional that night. I bet she's listening. I think you just I told her right did. now. No, I hope she is listening. I'll make, make it a point that she's going to be able to she hear it. She was exceptional. She uh-huh. really was. And it was, it was just a great night all around. It really was. And personally, I... I came away with a positive feeling towards John Featherman. I thought he was intelligent, articulate, mm. friendly, tall. <laughs> Very tall. He's everything that a, a practiced politician should be. And it was good sitting in the audience because I had no role that night. I was running for governor that year, and it was just nice to be able to sit back and enjoy something for a change. And Carmina, it's all your fault. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, if, if you don't mind, Ken, I think what was really important is how that came about. I had read an article, and it was written by a former history professor at Johns Hopkins. His name is, um, oh my goodness, Mr. Galambos, uh, Louis Galambos. And he wrote an article in the in a publication called Conversation, and it was really about Dwight Eisenhower's bipartisan approach to civil discourse. Uh-huh. And I thought with so many of the layers of what was happening in our political uh, discourse at that time, the significance of having more female candidates um, run for lieutenant governor and having an opportunity to have all the major political parties in the state come and talk at the primary level to try to approach um, the middle way concept that Dwight Eisenhower did, I felt was quite significant. Uh huh. I would agree. When I ran for governor, I've run for office, I don't know, I guess eight times total since... I guess over the last 25, 25 years I've been doing oh. this. Damn it. <laughs> no. But one thing that I did from the very beginning is I took a personal pledge that I would never, ever go negative on the person. I would not talk about personalities or anything like that. I would certainly point out some of the inconsistencies in their platform. Sure. But it would be the idea saying, here's a better way to do that. Here's one where you don't have to put sick people in prison with your crazy marijuana laws. Here's a way that we can end the opioid crisis or reduce opioid deaths by 85%. You know, how come you're not listening to this? But I'm not going to say you're an idiot for not listening to this. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of disappointed in our current president for that because he should, he should have taken that pledge. I think one of the other great things that came away from that is that people were able to see that you can have differences on issues, but you can be civil to each other. Yes. And when you open that type of engagement, you have an opportunity to respect that person for who that person is. Mm -hmm. Their character evolves or it comes out of it, not evolves, but you can see someone's character. And I have really grown into the spectrum that we need to start looking at people who are running for office and why are they running for office Mm -hmm. and do they care about human beings? Mm -hmm. And um, I think what came out of uh, that forum was very thoughtful and provocative uh, conversations that led people to think about who was running for office. Mm -hmm. And I was just really proud that we were able to give Kathleen and uh, Jocelyn an opportunity to have a platform at that Uh level. And one of the other things that was really, um, as a woman, what I gained out of that was the relationships that I built with the the Republican women that were running. Um, They had a lot of pressure from their party not to really cooperate. And I just remember... um, 
engaging myself every day uh, to talk to some of the candidates to feel comfortable to have that conversation. And as a result of that process of getting them to be engaged, um, I really grew to respect the Republican candidates as women, not necessarily because of the, they were Republican. Mm-hmm. And we did have some commonalities spiritually that connected. And I think that's it. I saw the human in, in all of the candidates. And uh-huh. that, I think, was great. Uh-huh. And, you know, one thing that I <clears throat> excuse me, one thing that I saw is that a couple of mm-hmm. weeks ago mm-hmm. you hosted what the, you mentioned earlier, the Middle Way Tour, mm-hmm. where you just got a bunch of neighborhood people. Some Absolutely. candidates, and you got together with lawn chairs and a potluck. See, that's the kind of thing that we need more of because Absolutely. just what you're saying, we learn more about these people as a person, and it gives us a chance in a non-threatening, one-way environment. Because good luck trying to tell somebody to their face, "You're an idiot." I it's not going to work. What also helped the environment was the the setting. Um, I really wanted to grab onto that concept of the middle way. And I looked at what is the centermost part of the county where we could have something in a non-traditional setting that was still within my jurisdiction under the branch. And I was fortunate to have found the Morgan Log House. Mm-hmm. And it was an 18th century log house in the middle of a community in Lansdale, right down the street from North Penn. I had never um, known about it. And when I found it and I went out and I saw it and I met with the executive director and one of his other staff persons, he began to explain to me the history of the log house. (laughs) And unbeknownst to me, it was uh, the first home of German settlers. Um, Then it became a home for a Quaker family. And uh, Daniel Boone's maternal parents lived there as well. So it it really became a a setting. And we had the conversation in the backyard. Uh Like you said, we asked people to bring a lawn chair. And that gave everyone equal footing. Mm -hmm. Um, We had food. We conversed. It wasn't a focus group. It wasn't in an auditorium. It wasn't in a municipal municipal building. And so that environment in itself had just a a way of making it a non-intrusive environment. Uh And everyone um, was respectful, and they listened to everyone. I just learned something right there. Yes. I'm a huge fan of Pennsylvania. Yes. And I've been – I have visited the Daniel Boone Homestead by Reading, Pennsylvania, near French Creek State Park, which is my home state park. I love the place. Okay. But I never knew that Daniel Boone lived down around here as well. Yes. His mother – his mother's parents lived there. Uh Uh-huh. How about – yeah, and it's a beautiful place. And as a result of the positive feedback that we received that, because we wanted to also now address the local issues, uh-huh. right, and, and and discuss it in a manner that we could be respectful and not polarized. And so we localized the middle way conversation where the other one was statewide, right? And um, the, we're going to do it again, and we're going to do it all twice a year. <laughs> wow. I, look, I didn't make the last one, but we were busy that weekend. My guest today, Carmina Taylor, branch president of the Ambler NAACP, and you're listening to episode six of the Pennsylvania Project. I'm your caster, Ken Krawchuk, and we'll be right back after this information. You've been a registered libertarian for years, voted for libertarians even longer, and lived by libertarian principles all your life. Now it's time to take the next step and join the Libertarian Party of Pennsylvania. Keep abreast of the March Towards Liberty in Pennsylvania. Take an active role in making it happen. 
maybe even consider running for a local political office yourself. It all starts with joining the Libertarian Party of Pennsylvania. It's easy, fast, and only $20 a year. So visit lppa.org to sign up today. That's lppa.org. Do it today. A freer future is waiting. Are you a small business owner always looking for referrals? Do you have a streamlined approach to generating new referrals? Contact Stephen Worley to learn the fast, easy way to generate new referrals. Stephen has an all-inclusive system that will help you generate an extra 5 to 10 customers per week without spending a single dollar on ads. You won't have to create a website, have pictures taken, or write a single ad. Stephen will take the headache out of the process. Contact him at stephenworley.com. That's Stephen with a V, W-E-R-L-E-Y dot com. Are you arranging your finances in the most tax-efficient way? Call Freedom Financial Tax at 866-401-1090 today to find out. At Freedom Financial Tax, we use creative tax solutions like infinite banking to make sure you're keeping as much of your hard-earned money as possible. Let Freedom Financial Tax help you out with a comprehensive tax plan. Call Freedom Financial Tax now at 866-401-1090. Thinking about getting your first tattoo? Maybe you're ready to add to that sleeve you started or cover up that one regretful choice. Put Sam C. and his team of artists at Ironwilled Tattoo Club in Glenside, PA at the top of your list. The team at Iron Will has plenty of designs to choose from. They can create an original design or work with the design that you provide. Call 267-893-7625 today to schedule your free consultation. That's 2678-WE-ROCK. Or visit them on Instagram at Iron Will Tattoo Club. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here, and we're back with episode six of the Pennsylvania Project, and our guest, Carmina Taylor. She hasn't run out the door yet. Oh, yeah, I'm back. I I, I, I was so fascinated by the commercial. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. You know, I want to go back to a few of the things that you mm-hmm. said in the, the first 15 minutes. One of them, you mentioned that the Ambler NAACP is so supportive of the of the different different groups of people absolutely and you're not race specific or anything like that mm-hmm. a lot of people aren't aware of that you know i was actually a member of the league of women voters for a while mm-hmm. and i didn't have to get a sex change or anything like that <laughs> exactly so we could join up with those things and i was listening to the list of things you do and one of them was to assist people with law enforcement issues mm-hmm. can you talk about that for a minute well we have a criminal justice uh committee and you know, theoretically, the NAACP really focus well tries to assist African Americans that get um, 
kind of marginalized by the system or, or treated unfairly. Um, so we want to address the uh, law enforcement disparities as it relates to arrest and unlawful arrest, uh, discriminatory practices as it relates to law enforcement. And uh, we really try to address juvenile justice issues that happen in our public school system as well. Uh-huh. And so, uh, you know, ironically enough, I had a situation earlier today and uh, it, it, it it saddened me um, because uh, it's, it's you know, this heightened feeling that we have with school shootings and gun violence and gun shootings and all those kinds of things that relate to, I think, broken spirits of humanity that leads to these gun violence attacks. Um, a young man was um, seventh grader put in a juvenile detention center today because they uh, found a gun in his locker. Hmm. And um, the mother called me frantic and crying. And uh, all I wanted to do was help her. Mm-hmm. And luckily enough, that one of the other things that we do is we want to have a proactive relationship with law enforcement. So at my meeting last month, I had a chief cadre's conversation. And I had all the chiefs in my municipalities and their juvenile justice officers. And I had the public... Uh, defender's office and I had the school resource officers there wow. all to come together over 25 people at our meeting we served them dinner I was going to say you have lawn chairs we did we served them <laughs> dinner but the whole focus was how do we work together on some of the disparities how do we work together on the perceptions of law enforcement uh-huh. and what came one of the biggest things that came away is that all of the 16 municipalities said we're going to work together on the larger issues and we're going to work together on the smaller issues mm-hmm. and we're going to develop relationships and conversations and communication so we're effective and we're not adversarial. I think that public perception about law enforcement and and what the NAACP does is we don't want to be adversaries. We want to advocate for people's rights in law enforcement. Uh Uh-huh. You know, you should, this is episode six. You should probably go back to episode four where we had on Maj Touré. He's running for, you know the man? Oh, you're nodding. I just found out about Yeah, he's running for Philadelphia City Council. Yes. And he found an organization, founded an organization called Black Guns Matter. Mm-hmm. And he's been visiting inner cities around the country. Sure. Teaching gun safety and also the fact that people should defend themselves, self-defense mm-hmm. issues, things like that. Because what he was saying is that when you go into the inner city, only two people, two types of two types of people, I can say it have guns, the bad guys and the cops. Mm -hmm. And he's looking to have that third middle ground where people can defend themselves and know how to use a gun safely. You know, it's funny because some people have criticized him saying, what, you want these people to, you want more shooting? He says, no, no, I want to teach them to shoot straight so they're not going to hit that kid in the stroller. And it's funny that you said that about educating people. I was talking to one of the chiefs of the police today, and we talked about how do we raise awareness for young people to realize the consequences of being in a situation where you do have a gun and you're not supposed to have a gun, and that there's repercussions of, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a BB gun, and I don't know all of the circumstances related to the situation, but just why would a gun be in your book bag in middle school? You know, it's it's interesting. I'm, I'm a little older than you, but you know what? When I was back there in seminary school, I want to say, but oh. I'm a Doors fan. When I was back there in school, we had a shooting range in the cellar of the school, in the okay. basement. And we were trained in firearms, 22s. And also, I remember getting on a, it was the PTC bus at the time, now it's SEPTA. And sitting across from me were two of my buddies, and they're sitting there with rifles, 22 rifles. So the attitudes have changed a lot. 
and people just don't realize that gun ownership used to be something that was just common and taken Absolutely. for granted. And it was taught. A regular safety thing was taught. Somewhere we crossed the line. And I, I can point to a couple of things. I think this insane war on drugs has upped the stakes. And a lot of these other quote-unquote victimless crimes that take people who aren't hurting anybody and, and turn, it into a, turn them into criminals. In, in some regard, when we have some of the more violent crimes, I really think that we as a society have lost respect for life. That there's just not human respect for life. Uh, and, do, do you know, my lady, I hate to disagree with a woman. Okay, you can hate because to disagree. For, because the Northwestern, Northeastern University in Boston. Boston. I used to go to Northeastern. Wow. I started out at Northeastern. You know, my mother says, no matter where you go, someone's going to know me. And I'm going to find out what you did. <laughs> I know, but, but they, go ahead. I'm sorry. That's okay. You know, feel free to feel free to butt in. Uh, they did a study and mm-hmm. they found that. Mass shootings today are one quarter what they were in the 1990s. Isn't that and, interesting? And they're going down. And you know, people don't know it. Do you know why? Why? Because the TV shows, the 24-7 news cycles are looking for anything. So That's a good point. they're just blowing it all out of proportion. That's now, when I first started running for public office, I expected death threats, slash tires, you mm-hmm. know, egged on the door at night and everything like that. What I found was the exact opposite. I found that most politicians and most people actually truly care for the neighborhood and their fellow person. Mm. It's a very, very rare person who steps outside of that box. I was blown away. I got an anonymous phone call my first race. I was running for state rep in Abington Township. And the phone rang and I answered it. She says, is this the candidate? I says, yeah. She says, listen, you should get down to McKinley Park right now because the Civic Association is having a picnic. Mm. I said, why? Oh, your opponent is here shaking hands. You should be here too. I said, who is this? That's not important. What's important is you get down to that park right away. Now, that's an example of what I was running into. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people say doctors only see sick people. Police only see criminals. And you really need to look beyond that and sure. say, what, what is the bulk of humanity looking like? And in my political experience, there are people like you empathetic people, people who care about their neighbors, who do things to get them going. Maybe not as dramatic as some of the great things that you've been doing. <laughs> but, you know, like I said, my, again, my pardon for disagreeing with you, but everything that I've seen says that the world is a nicer place than what you're painting it. Well, and, and, and to some extent, I, I agree with you as well. I just meant that I think sometimes when you have some of the real violent deaths, I I have interpreted that that was no respect for life. But I think that we as human beings have the capacity to be empathetic. And I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, I've been in environments and people have told me that my spirit is infectious in the room. I don't see it. (laughs) I agree. But but that's what I've been told. And, um, you know, it's funny when you have kids and you do your best and you raise them and you hope that they behave when they're not around. And, you know, kids are always hardest on their parents. But I've been told that my son emulates my spirit. And I don't know that, but other people have told me that. And so I think when you lead with empathy and you show empathy and um, you exhibit compassion for others, then that is something that people sense and um, want to emulate. And they do sometimes emulate indirectly. I'm sorry. No, that's that's okay. I was just looking because our our clock has gone out. Okay. That's right. But we still have plenty of time. Well, 
I just wanted to agree with you as well. I, I, I think it's a combination. I just think, you know, um, well, when we talk about, and, and you always talked about solutions, and I think yes. one of the solutions is that we have to be much more open to understanding other people's human conditions. Mm -hmm. um, the plight of the human condition we have um, is so prevalent. And um, interestingly enough, my car was stolen at 24th of Fairmount months ago. And I just felt like uh, God was trying to tell me something. And so what I did... Not move. That's a beautiful neighborhood. <laughs> I know. It was so unusual. It's not like I had a, a, a BMW or Jaguar. But nonetheless, um, I chose to ride public transportation and to adapt, right, initially, instead of just buying another car. And... I normally don't take the train and I normally don't ride the bus. And these months that I chose not to drive, I had a wider view of human condition in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And I am so humbled um, by the blessings that God has given me. And um, I was with one of uh, the one of the registered city councilors, that, uh, a candidate for city councilor, she had a meeting in the temple building and she went with the leftover food and fed the homeless people in the train station. I would not have known that uh -huh. if I had not commuted that day. I have learned more about the human condition in um, Philadelphia by another circumstance that uh -huh. happened to me. So we, I, I well, you we know, have to be empathetic. You know, you think with your your childhood being raised in Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. that you would have that feel already innate? Well, I think that life lessons, different life experiences lead you to different experiences, different aspects of uh -huh. experiences. I mean, in Puerto Rico, I didn't, when I came to the States, I didn't know racial disparities. I didn't know socioeconomic differences because in Puerto Rico, we're all shades. Uh -huh. um, my parents deliberately lived in the community. I was surrounded by what we call in Puerto Rico, hebros, the people, the salt of the earth. Uh -huh. And so when I came to the States and I saw the blank differences in race and the blank differences in neighborhoods, it was so foreign to me. Uh -huh. And um, I've tried to lead my life um, as if I'm no better than anyone else. Uh-huh. And, um... Yeah, I, I certainly share that. I was raised in a row home in North Philadelphia. Okay. Front Street, south of the boulevard. So my father was a, a factory worker, took good care of my mother and my brothers. So I, I was there, too. I, yeah. And that gives you an appreciation for the things that you, that you got, especially Absolutely. now that I'm living out in Abington Township, beautiful place. And our block is mixed. I mean, mm -hmm. it was. We've been there now thirty some years. It was mixed the day we moved in. It's mixed today, and it's just friendly. It's nice. Absolutely. And you know what got us to move in when we went to look at the house the first time? I had to get out of the car and move a tricycle out of the middle of the street to be able to drive by. And I said, "That's the kind of house I want to live in." That's the kind of neighborhood it's always been. Let me back up a little bit now to something mm -hmm. else that you had mentioned, and that's the criminal justice. Yes. system. Mm -hmm. Do you actually get into the courts? No. Well, no, because typically what happens is that people have um, an issue. They feel that there's a discriminatory issue, a human rights issue related to um, being marginalized or discriminated against. They file a complaint with us. Our legal redress committee um, addresses it or investigates and the criminal justice committee members and the legal redress committee members work together. And through the investigation, we find out what are some of the resources or services that they need. Uh -huh. um, 
if it's a really huge case, we take it to our national association and nice. legal department uh, assesses it and, and, and decides whether they take it on. We also try to work with local authorities to address things as well. Uh-huh. Let me ask you, and you could decline to answer this. Do you feel that the courts are impartial or do you feel that they're somewhat racist or, or some other word? So I will talk from personal experiences. That's why, you're, that's why we have you here. Absolutely, because I have, um, and actually I had a conversation about this. I went through the common pleas and the custody courts in Pennsylvania, Norristown. And one of the things that I think um, is very difficult is for an average person to understand how to navigate the system. Amen. And if you don't have money um, and you don't really know how to navigate just to get to a public defender's office, I took the system on by myself. Um, but I said, you. what about me? But if, if there was someone that was not like me that didn't have the determination to navigate through all the services and the offices and the paperwork and the stairs and the all, you know all of those problems uh-huh. how do you how does the average person an ordinary person <laughs> with with less skills right they don't and and, and you you don't and and I talked at at the middle way, I think it was at that time, where I really feel like the court system needs to have a chart, a visual chart, and and navigate someone. If this is the office for this, you know, this is what you do. And then when you file here, this is it. But a diagram Uh in the main space. So by my own personal experiences, advocating for myself as a single mom, um, it it was difficult, but I was determined. Uh You know, it's all music to my ears because that's what I do professionally. I do diagrams. Diagrams, models of process and data, and I'm in information technology, and that is my forte. I hold three United States patents oh, on how to do that. That's awesome. Yeah, so maybe we should get together and I could draw a picture of what you're doing. Well, it's really quickly. Um, I'm an organizational development. Pro- oh, sorry. No, you're an organizational development. Oh, I. I'm an organizational development practitioner, and I am adamant about interactive and engaging um, vehicles to help people retain information. Uh huh. Well, I'm sorry I made you jump there, but we are running out of time. Yes, I'm sorry. Do you have any website or contact information you'd like to share with everybody? So even though the young people think that Facebook is a little old, um, we do have an Ambler NAACP Facebook page, and we're constantly keeping people informed of what we're doing and how they need to be engaged in the political system and the civil system in our society uh-huh. in okay. our communities so, so ambler and on facebook absolutely well that's going to about wrap it up for the them portion of the pennsylvania project i'd like to thank again carmina taylor my guest do you know that my last name crawchuck means taylor really yeah so i'm ken taylor <laughs> are you serious i am serious it's ukrainian for taylor oh well we're kindred Yes. So thank you for being here. She is the branch president of the Ambler NAACP. Thank you again for showing up. We're going to pause for information. And when we return, I'll be ranting about something that really sticks in my craw, second class citizenship. I'm sorry. The following is a commercial announcement. Hey, Sheila, how's it going? Meh, could be better. Why? What's the matter? I just found this great job, but I can't take it. Why not? They want me to go as a 1099 contractor. So? So? What about all the taxes? Federal taxes, state taxes, this tax, that tax. I have better things to do than figuring out tax laws and filling out all these forms. I'm a libertarian, remember? Well, then you need Amendment 16. Hey, isn't that damn 
16th Amendment that got me into this predicament in the first place? No, no, no. Amendment 16, the invoicing service. They'll invoice your client for the hours and expenses you report to them, and when your client pays them, they pay you, minus all required taxes. It's that easy. One call does it all. And they'll even have an accountant do your personal taxes for you come April Fool's Day. I mean, April 15th. And they take care of all the taxes, all those forms? Yep. And they can pass along certain tax breaks, too. Sounds perfect. Where do I find them? On the web, of course. Amendment16.com, with 16 spelled out. Amendment, S-I-X-T-E-E-N.com. One call does it all. Do you need a state inspection, emissions testing, tires, brakes, exhaust, suspension work, or routine factory schedule maintenance? For all of your automotive service needs, visit Wallace Auto Service at 700 East Haverford Road in Bryn Mawr, PA. Wallace Auto even has a Phillips 66 gas station where you can fill up at great low prices. Check out Wallace Auto online at wallaceautoservice.com or call them at 610-658-9000. For over 16 years, Wallace Auto Service has been proud to serve the Bryn Mawr, Haverford area. Stop in, say hello, and fill up your tank at Wallace's great low prices. That's Wallace Auto Service and Phillips 66 Gas Station at 700 East Haverford Road and Bryn Mawr, PA. Or give them a call at 610-658-9000. Thank you, Sheila. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here, and welcome to the me portion of episode six of the Pennsylvania Project, where I get to rant about something that really sticks in my craw. You know what sticks in my craw? Second-class citizenships. We libertarians, were different from the two old parties because we are the party of principle. Every law we support, every law we oppose can be traced back to one central idea. The idea that your life is yours, that your property is yours. That you have the right to live your life your way without interference, provided only you respect the rights and property of others. It's the golden rule on a political level. That said, it's obvious how I stand on human rights issues. Your life your way, period, as long as you're respecting others. I believe that means we should be treated equally under the law. That means no special favors for any group, nor any special handicaps for any one group. No second-class citizenships. But... Current law grants special protections for different groups. Gays, women, minorities, businesses, politicians. They have benefits and recourse that's not available to people who are outside of those groups. What we've done, we've raised them up. We've given them things that other people don't have. But my degree is in physics, and I look at things from a relativistic point of view. I'm not looking at it that we're raising these people up. I'm looking that we're pushing everybody else down. All these laws are creating second-class citizenships. I oppose second-class citizenships because I believe everybody must be equal in the eyes of the law, period. Shouldn't be there right now. So let's get rid of those, all those second-class citizenships created by law. There's another area where one group is raised over another. Marriage, or mowage, as they would say in, in the movie there. Why? Tell me. Somebody tell me, why is the government in the marriage business? But you know, one thing that a lot of people don't know. Do you know why marriage licenses were first created? People are sitting around me shaking their heads. I found most people don't. 
except for African-Americans. They seem to know why. Because they know because marriage licenses were first created to prevent interracial marriages. Most people don't know that. And you know what? Today, they're using those same racist techniques against LGBTQs, against transgender people, against anybody that they don't think should get married. Who is the government to stand in the way of true love? Good grief. See what the second class citizenships, it just gets to me after a while. It's past time for this, that we reach for the separation of marriage and state. Because whatever legal privileges are available to quote unquote traditional couples, that should also be available to same sex couples, including civil unions, inheritance rights, medical power of attorney, attorney, eternity, <laughs> tax breaks, much, much more than that. All those sorts of things. Fortunately, though, and there's something else most people don't know, here in Pennsylvania, we have something called a self-officiating marriage. It's an old Quaker tradition. Your officiant can marry people with no special qualifications, no license, no religious affiliations, nothing. In fact, back in 2017, I married our executive producer, Mark, and he's our producer of the Pennsylvania Project, and no, no, we didn't wind up as husband and husband. I think my wife would get upset. But I served at the, as the officiant in the marriage of Mark and his new wife, Eva. My eldest daughter, Melanie, she was married by her future sister-in-law. And I wonder what the term would be before she got married. I guess future sister-in-law is close enough. And Melanie also served as the officiant at her friend's wedding. That was pretty interesting. This is a gift to all the Pennsylvanians from the Quaker. And it's available to all of us. And I thank them for that very, very libertarian gift. But I digress. Coming back to the topic of second-class citizenship, what about in the business world? Because when it comes to whether a company should offer benefits to same-sex couples versus married couples versus whatever kind of combination you could think of, it's none of the government's business. They shouldn't be mandating these things. They shouldn't be manufacturing second-class citizenships. It's an issue that each company should address on their own. Government should never dictate to anyone how to run their business or private lives as long as they're respecting the rights and property of others, as I said. If a company wants to offer such benefits, fine. If they don't, don't. But then one way or the other, they're going to have to suffer the consequences in the free marketplace. In my company, I offer no medical insurance at all. Instead, I pay people a higher than average wage and let them buy it themselves. Turns out that it's cheaper for them to buy it personally than it is for me to buy it as a company. It also allows for a greater range of insurance options. Another area where government is creating second-class citizenships is the whole question around bathrooms. But that's going to take a long time. That's going to be another rant on another day, another sticks in my craw. But for today, let me just sum it up. Government should stop creating second-class citizenships. Government should never interfere in any private affairs. The government should get out of the marriage business entirely because what's good for the goose and gander is good for the goose and the goose and the gander and the gander and the goose, gander and gander and the gander, goose and goose and goose and the goose who used to be a gander or the gander who's now a goose or identifies as a swan or a turtle or I don't care what or an active consensual adult sex worker or whatever because you have the right to live your life your way without interference but only you respect the rights and property of others. Well, that's going to wrap it up for episode six of the Pennsylvania Project. If you have something to say, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at PennsylvaniaProject.com, and you can also hear us there, too. You'll hear us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, and other popular podcast providers. 
Today's episode is courtesy of Amendment 16 Limited, recorded live at the studios of WWDB Radio, broadcasting every Saturday at 8.60 a.m. in Philadelphia, and podcast every Tuesday at PennsylvaniaProject.com. Our technical producer today is Paul Nicotera. Featured Toastmaster narrator is distinguished Toastmaster Sheila Arespi. Webmaster Stephen Worley, marketing guru, Connor Dragotis, keyboard wizard Joe Pag, executive producer Mark Pizzacco, and me, your caster, Ken Krawchuk. Thanks for joining us, and remember, more important than solving the problem correctly is to solve the correct problem.